Welcome to Emotional and Spiritual Well-Being, the podcast that balances psychology and spirituality, helping you achieve well-being by discussing how the mind, will, and emotions interplay with the spiritual and physical. Here is your host, Sharon Wegman. Hi, welcome to Wellspring Solutions, where we are a counseling agency located in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Reading, Pennsylvania. And we really like to talk about how body, soul, and spirit interchange. We like to talk about how it impacts various aspects of life. And today, Kate Byler and I, say hello, Kate. Hi, guys. Most of you already know me from all the other podcasts (laughs) I've been on, so. And I'm Sharon Wegman. I didn't say that. Good Lord. (laughs) We are going to talk about understanding the teen brain because it's a passion of Kate in particular. Yeah. um, Because she sees a lot of teenage clients and it's a passion of mine as a former parent of teenagers Mm -hmm. and educating parents in in parenting better. So go ahead, Kate, why don't you... Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of the reasons for this podcast is to hopefully help imparent, imparent, wow, empower some (laughs) of the parents, oh God, to feel like they understand at least what their teen is going through, even at a very normal teenage stage. Your teenager doesn't even have to be going through anything super dramatic or significant to just have a hard time understanding them, I think, so. Absolutely, and we... When I was a kid, nobody taught me about the teen brain. Right. And my parents weren't taught about the teen brain. So now we have more understanding of it and it's more power. So listen up. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is kind of hopefully helping you guys understand the basic, I guess, chemical happenings that are happening for your teenager. So Right around the time, I would say between 12 and 17, depending on when your kid is going to go through puberty, a lot of different hormones are going to be released. And and some of that looks like a chemical that we actually have as adults now called THP. Don't ask me what that stands for. (laughs) If you really want to know, look it up. Something, I'm guessing the middle age is hormone, (laughs) but This helps us calm ourselves down in stressful moments as an adult. And actually, what happens when our teenagers get this for the first time, it does the opposite reaction for them. So it makes them kind of go into that stimulus-seeking mode, whereas, like, we as adults, when we get it, we kind of calm down, we're relaxed. Teenagers, they just want to go. Oh, yeah, and that really makes sense when we think about how female hormones fluctuate, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, when when women don't have good hormone production at Mm -hmm. that point in time in their cycle. They're sometimes more obsessive, more edgy, more needing to do sometimes addictive behaviors. So it makes a lot of sense that we understand it, that the teen brain constantly has that. Yes. They're constantly looking for stimulus. So like, I mean, a lot of the, one of the things I really remember in a lot of my training is that a bored teen equals getting into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) because they're naturally just want to look for stimulus. That's what their brain is craving. It's not really that they want to do bad things because they're a bad kid. No, no. They, they crave doing something and keeping it occupied. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is why I always encourage, have your kid in at least one activity (laughs) at all times, not seven, but one. 
keeps your keeps their brain occupied. Absolutely. So I think saying that is just hoping that when parents hear that, know that it's very natural for your kid to do thrill-seeking behaviors. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's just a part of them, their brain maturing. It actually means their brain is trying to mature. It just doesn't really know how. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And and if they've had any trauma in their childhood, right. and trauma can be divorces, it can be moving, it can be changing schools, mm-hmm. and their level of trauma, bullying, <laughs> there's so many different kinds of trauma they might have experienced that their cortisol levels might even be higher. Yeah. So the traumatized teenage brain, that is the number of traumas they've had in their short period of time, is going to be more active. For sure. And harder to lower those cortisol levels, I would say, as a teenager. Whereas once your brain's kind of fully developed, we have clients come in here. At least I have found, because I see other clients aside from teens, but when I give more developed brains, anxiety-reducing techniques, it's easier for them to implement them and calm down, whereas a teenager is just like, I don't know, they didn't work, I don't know, you know, they're just go, go, go. It is hard for them to apply those types of things, Mm -hmm. so I just make them run. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) But but the idea being is uh, they don't know how to stay focused enough to do that type of activity because their brain is so stimulated. Right. Which is why, this is even why you you as a parent don't understand why they can study better with their earbuds in. Exactly. You don't understand how they can have the TV on, earbuds in, chatting with someone, and they're doing their homework. Their level of cortisol is so much higher Mm -hmm. that they are literally stimulating it while they're studying. Yeah, for sure. And they're constantly just looking for interaction or stimulation or something that can, like, keep their brain going rather than being bored. Right. So they're in their thrill-seeking behavior. I think it, it, it helps parents to understand this is what is going on. Um, it's okay. We channel that. We help mm-hmm. channel that as a parent. It's a rite of passage. It's what they're going to do. We provide activities and stimulation as their parents to help channel it into healthy directions. Right. So they don't need to go graffiti somebody's house. <laughs> right. Or sneak out <laughs> at one in the morning to go drinking. <laughs> right. All of that. So it's so helpful for parents to recognize that as mm-hmm. a need. And then channel that correctly. Yeah. And so with some of those thrill-seeking hormones also come the sex hormones, (laughs) which is usually the, I think the scary, I mean, you could tell me since you're a parent, you've been a parent of a teen and I have not, but are almost maybe the scary, more intimidating parts of like a... The, the hormones that parents have to deal with. I don't know. That's what I have felt in my work, <laughs> that knowing and understanding the sexual part of um, teenagers growing up is kind of I think hard. it's scary for parents to, mm-hmm. to, to recognize it. However, we were them at mm-hmm. one point in time. Right. And I, I think because of different traumas that we may have experienced in our childhood yeah we can add our anxiety to how we deal with that subject and we never want to do that because the subject should be able to be discussed easily without trauma 
our trauma. Right. <laughs> and our child shouldn't feel like we're pushing to have this discussion so that our own anxiety is decreased. Yeah. So I think talking about sex starts very early. Yeah, especially now, I would say, even more than before. Oh, my goodness. You <laughs> have to be able to begin talking about it. I would say probably four Maybe even three, where you're just naming yes. the correct body mm -hmm. parts so that you can easily say the word penis. Right. So you can easily say a word that if you have never said it before and suddenly you're introducing it, suddenly it's very awkward. Yeah, if not shameful. <laughs> exactly. But if you're using those terminologies early on by right. calling body parts for what they are, for labeling why they're touching themselves right. and what to pro how to do yeah. how to and like why they're doing that and Absolutely. like it's not something to be ashamed of but giving them education and discussing about it instead of making it a secret right and so because if it's a secret it'll turn into an addiction exactly and it, addiction adds to shame and you get stuck in that really dark cycle that it's hard to get out of quite honestly it is and so you'll you'll meet lots of kids who were not educated that way and developed maybe masturbation addictions mm -hmm. um, at a very early age because nobody was really having that safe conversation with them. Yeah. And I wonder if it's hard. Like, I think the word normalizing can be scary for parents sometimes because it's like you're not condoning it, but you're able to be like, hey, this sexual thought is like normal for you to have as a teen. Like these things or urges are going to be a part of being a teenager, I want you to know, like, being able to talk about it is okay. Like, there's no shame in being able to voice it. Right. So, so, is, yeah, normalizing it from as early as possible, talking about it when it comes up, sharing your own stories, mm -hmm. not your sex stories. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, like, I can even remember my mother, who had had a bad experience in her childhood, talked to me about sleepovers and mm -hmm. what can sometimes happen at sleepovers right. if you're not aware mm -hmm. of what happens and how to deal with that and, and what can be an escape route. Right. And that was helpful to me, even though I had no idea what the heck she was talking sure. about because <laughs> she didn't give me the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um. It helped me begin to process, you know, this can happen in these types of settings. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even the idea that we keep your child completely from all, all things, but we're educating them yeah. all along the way. This could be what happens. This is what you're out is. This is what you should say. Right. Empowering them as opposed to shaming them for even bringing up something yeah asking a question that might feel weird like they're already feeling pretty weird <laughs> as it is they're a teenager they have that is like the oh, weirdest stage of life indeed I always tell I try to validate some of my teen clients because to them I think or maybe no I should say to adults sometimes their drama feels petty but I would not you could not pay me enough to go back to being a teenager. No, I <laughs> so would no. I think validating that time in their life is really important to them because it is. It's a really hard. It's a confusing time. I know it, it's a it's a really triggering time for them on so many levels, and they're trying to figure out the rest of their life and. <laughs> 
it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and they're in competition with everyone else they meet. That's a team. It's it's yeah, it's so much more I think this the level of stress for teenagers is significantly higher than when I went when I went to high school. Yeah. We were I talk about that all the time with other parents that when my kids went off to college, what they had to do to get into the school that they wanted to go to and all of those types of things was so different than when I was a kid where you just applied and that's where you went. It's yeah. just, it was just so simple and you yeah. felt, figured it out as you went, but these right. kids are already being channeled into uh, where they should be going. So there's just so much more stress than yeah. we ever had. I think, I think people would be surprised that like what even just validating that for teens would open up as a safe place for them. Just being able to say, like, man, high school is probably really, it seems a lot harder for you now than it might have been for me, or in a lot of ways is so different. I think your teen might not be able to say, wow, mom, thanks. That was so nice of you. I really <laughs> no. appreciate it. How do you feel doing that? <laughs> but they might start talking. They might start opening up to you, which is a, which should be an, an affirmation for you. Absolutely. Um, so I think... I guess we want to just talk a little bit more about parenting in that process. Yeah. Um, what I say is it's the easiest way to get your child to talk to you is to not talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning you do things, but you're not asking lots of questions. Questions are forced engagement where if it naturally arises, I always suggest to parents, tell them a story. Mm -hmm. You're driving by something. It reminds you of something. Tell them a story. That's you being vulnerable. That's you sharing about your life. And mm -hmm. then they will engage as you're telling them that story. Have a shared thing that you do, whatever it is. Right. Whether it's for my daughter, it was going to thrift stores. That was a shared thing. Um, for my son, it was... Um, extreme Legos, you know, mm -hmm. for, I mean, and I would do those things with them and engage with it because I really did enjoy those things, but you must come up with shared ritual engagement habits in which they know you love what they love. Right. So you're kind of like setting the stage or like partially like doing that work and connecting with them and it allows them to like start talking rather than interrogating them. Like, how was your day at school? What did you do? Oh, it was just fine. Right. That feels it's it just doesn't work. It has no, never worked. It's never worked, people. <laughs> never. I ask them every day how their day was and they just say fine. <laughs> well, then don't. <laughs> yeah. Tell them about something that happened in your day. I made it an effort to find something amusing from my day that was in some way embarrassing or shameful because <laughs> that seems to happen a lot <laughs> and I would share those stories and that would make them laugh and because I was being vulnerable they would be vulnerable right and I think we sometimes demand vulnerability from our children mm -hmm. when we ourselves are not vulnerable right well and I think that goes that reminds me we forgot kind of forgot to hit like this point too, vulnerability is also teaching them intimacy. Yes. And like intimacy can be very confusing for teens if we're not able to relate to them in it and talk to them about it or differentiate in it. Sure. And I can remember, um, 
you know, both of my children asking me about things regarding maybe same sex things. Mm -hmm. And, and, and early on the discussion has always been, um, understanding how intimacy is formed in attachment. Right. I'm sorry, but my children are raised by a therapist. <laughs> and how a distant relationship can impact a desire for different types of intimacy mm-hmm. because you don't have that. Because right. that's even true for us as adults. Oh, for sure. If we didn't have a good mom or a good dad, we desire, we grieve that we don't have that. Mm-hmm. So if we who are adults understand that, Right. And they, who are all hyped up on cortisol, don't understand that. <laughs> right, that can be pretty confusing. <laughs> they are going to be very confused For by the sure. lack of relational connection they have, but the desire to have it and how to move into that. Right, so, I mean, I would be, I don't know, hopefully this isn't too brash to say that if you're a parent and you don't really understand your own intimacy needs and have intimacy work, doing that work in therapy would greatly benefit. Oh my goodness. It's so important to understand how you attach to people. Right. Because then you're able to help your kid understand that because intimacy should be seen too with like connections with your kid and your parent. It doesn't have to be sexualized all the time. It does not. And if there is not good connection, it can easily be sexualized because intimacy can be confused with sexuality. Right. At their age. Yes, for sure. Or even from a very earlier age. Yeah. If there wasn't a parent there all along, it could easily be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Or maybe or maybe even opposite. I have a very aggressive parent mm-hmm. who makes me disdain that sex because right. of what they've done. Mm-hmm. That will literally impact how I have intimacy needs and with with what sex exactly it's something that we don't see being talked about but it's very common in understanding attachment theory yeah and with like and I guess to me like with trauma right like certain sex or certain genders feel safer because of trauma and recognizing that as a parent like maybe if you've had been through a divorce, dad is volatile, women might feel very safe much more than men and how that impacts your teenagers look on intimacy and sexuality is is a lot like that. That's a lot to debrief. It is. And I have adult parents who sit in my office crying because they didn't realize what they were doing when they were making their children responsible to take care of their feelings. Mm hmm. We love the podcast, um, the place we find ourselves, yeah. and he does a really he does a really good job of explaining attachment and why you need to understand your story. So yeah. we're gonna actually send out send you to go listen to another podcast. Yes, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I guess we talk about all this in hopes that it sparks something in you that whether it's coming to therapy to get more guidance on this stuff or knowing how to talk to your kid or teen about these things because. I think in general, as human beings, we also get caught up in our own world and we need to listen to things sometimes to see, oh, maybe I'm doing that or maybe I haven't worked through that on my own. It's hard to do if we have not experienced all the nurture that we needed growing up. It's very hard to hear hard things, but I think I 
the more I embraced the failings of my myself as mm-hmm. a parent, the more I became to be a stronger parent in how I parented in a safe way. Right. Um, so let's talk about what safe parenting looks like. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, the number one thing I think is, is so important to when your child is sharing anything with you. You have to keep your reaction completely under control so that they feel safe enough to pro- progress in being with you and talking with you. Yeah, absolutely, because your child, and you can probably relate to this if you think back to when you were a kid, your child's, like, innate response is to still want to care for you if you seem upset in that moment, or they'll shut down because they're registering your emotions so much. Absolutely. So, like, I remember I... My when I was teaching my children to drive, my anxiety would really st- make them anxious. It was very easy to see. So I literally had to <laughs> sit on my hands and keep my mouth shut and almost sometimes close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but it made it safe for them to experiment with driving in a way that they could ask. Mm-hmm. But they the worst that would happen is they might have a a mistake and the reality of it, they'll learn from that mistake. Right. That's how they learn is through mistakes. Right. And they don't make that same mistake again. If we don't shame them for that, it changes them. So number one, when they share something with you, Mm -hmm. you have to hide your anxiety. Right. You have to hide your anger. You have to hide anything that's going to make them suddenly feel shameful or scared of how you're experiencing them. Yes. And hopefully you have a space outside of that moment to experience whatever feelings you need to, just not with them. Right. I always tell my parents, it's not your job to process your feelings with with your child. And that's hard because at that moment, maybe that kid is what's mm-hmm. making you feel very angry. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're feeling loss and maybe you're feeling anxious about something. And so if you talk about how that makes you feel with them, that doesn't mean we don't eventually hold them accountable for it. For sure. If you talk about it with them at that point in time, in that um, agitated state, they're not going to continue to talk to you right. about those types of things. Right. So number one, keep your emotions to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so hard, but it's what they need to feel because they're coming to you to have safe attachment. Yep. And if you don't, if you can't be that safe person, they're not going to keep coming. Right. Um, I'm going to also say, I think sometimes when people bring up a feeling, a child comes and brings up a feeling, like somebody makes them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. it's very um, it's very important for you as a parent to not dismiss whatever emotion they are expressing. So this person feels uncomfortable. Um, I I don't know why we got we process that we don't dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like this kid. And as a parent, sometimes, like, 
I want my child to be the good boy who takes right. care of everybody. Mm-hmm. But if we dismiss that and try to keep forcing them, we ignore whatever warning bells are going off in their body. Right. To say, this isn't safe. This isn't good for me. This is not going to be good for me. So we cannot be dismissive of their personal experience of another child or their personal experience of an adult. We have to process that and figure that out with them. Yeah, and I think even being able to validate them almost like, like by validating them by engaging with them about that feeling, right? Like what makes you feel right. that way around this person? Like how, what, what are they doing that makes you feel unsafe? So they can, you as you're doing that, you're able, you're empowering them to make boundaries and even know what's safe is unsafe for them. Exactly. So, you know, maybe they, maybe they were friends with certain kids when they were younger. And then as they move into their teen, teenage years and cortisol stirred up, they're not attracted to that kid anymore, but you like that kid, mm-hmm. right? And you might say, oh, why don't you go hang out with Joe? And they're mm-hmm. like, no, I don't really want to. We don't have anything in common. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. He's such a nice boy or whatever. Right, right. When I'm dismissing that, I literally cause them to not feel heard and devalue them. And I'm also causing them to not feel safe to talk about what they like and what they don't like. Yeah, for sure. Um, so then, um, that's the kind of, that's the third part, which is the devaluation of whatever they say. Yes. Um, or like, I see this sometimes with parents and it's like, oh, she's so emotional. Wait a second. Right. That's how she was created. That's not a wrong thing. Oh, she's too much. What? No. Right. What? Maybe she's actually the one who's calling out what's actually happening in the house when nobody else is. Right. So So being able to hear them really well instead of shut it down. And I think with like not trying not to personalize it. Right. Like (laughs) that could be probably be a whole other podcast, maybe. But it just like you can't. You have to, it keeps going back to being able to shut down those feelings for a moment so they, you can really hear your kid out. Right. I want my kid to be this athlete, but instead they're this amazing artist. But I want them to be an athlete because that was my dream. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's me living through them. Yeah. And they don't actually get to develop and be embraced for what they're good at. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about um, spiritual abuse and what we see happen to our clients. Yeah, so I think that can go along, too, with the just the theme of shame that you can create for your teenager. Um, a lot of the times, you know, my teens come in here and, you know, I think parents, it's out of, like, good intentions, but they're not realizing the effect it's having on their team to meet something with prayer or a Bible verse in a way that's cutting off their kids need to just want to discuss if that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, and so what can happen is if we use our religious beliefs or Bible verses or in this, you know, Kate mentioned prayer to stop the conversation. Mm hmm. We literally cause them to not want to have religious beliefs. Yeah. Which is so difficult because, 
you know, if you've been raised in an environment where religious beliefs were really important for you, you have this extreme value that you have trained up your child and mm-hmm. the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart. And I always say to parents, if you have given good love and good foundation to them in those first 13 to 14 years, they don't forget it. Yeah, they absolutely. heard it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're suddenly going to lose it. Mm-hmm. They're just exploring. Yeah. And I think just again, I want parents to know that they're if your teen is even questioning their faith or kind of dismissing the Bible or faith in general right now, like that's them trying to work it out and become their own person. I've always appreciated, or I I never thought about this, but I never really grew up in in the church per se, but parents that when their kid reaches a certain age, allow their kid to choose if they want to go on a Sunday morning, like things like that, where you're allowing sometimes your kid to process what or how are they experiencing God and their faith. And it might not look, like how you want it to in that moment. No, it might, <laughs> might not. <laughs> and that's the scary part for parents because we worry that we didn't give them the spiritual foundation that was is going to produce, you know, the same kind of relationship with uh, a God. And so I think sometimes this is where a big becomes a big battleground mm-hmm. for a lot of parents is this person's expressing this and I'm sending them Bible verses every other day or or whatever. And I'm not calling out any particular parents. So please don't write me about this because it happens happens a lot. It happens a lot. And I feel like the child doesn't feel valued. Yeah. And I think it, because your child also does want your approval, it creates a lot of shame for them. And they have a hard time being able to critically think about it. So let's say you have your kid might, I don't know, maybe they try to be vulnerable with you about the topic of sex before marriage or something. And you keep telling them God created it this way. Like this is what the Bible says in all of a sudden they feel ashamed that they even had that thought or want or might yeah, think of it true. differently because they partially want to have you approve of them, but also there's no room for discussion because you're just kind of talking about what the Bible says instead of being able to have a personal conversation. If that Right. Makes sense. Exactly. To be able to even say, this is what could happen one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, the critical thinking of go down this path, what's what this looks like. Go down this path, that's what lo- this looks. Go down this path, that's what this looks like. That's that critical thinking that they need to have be empowered to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes that's that's what we need to see parents foster when it comes to religious beliefs because we see these kids raised in very authoritarian mm, homes mm-hmm. and they go away and they are completely off the deep end yeah. going to a Christian college. Cause that's the only thing parents would pay for. Right. And they're just doing everything and everything. Why? Cause they haven't, they've only been parented via authoritarian rules as opposed to authoritative 
where you're able to talk about things and talk about critical thinking and process out the end result for right. each thing. It just makes me think of like that parents, like teens want to see a human being in front of them. They don't want to see someone religiously verbatim giving them answers from a Bible that they can read. They want to hear your human thoughts, your stories, maybe like how you would see it. And when they don't get that, things become internalized and that idea of religious abuse and shame just starts stirring in them and they can't process out anything else. And that gets really dangerous for their mental health. Like it just, it does. It it sets off in a lot of different ways. Um, Because we got cortisol going on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, (laughs) And they're still just discovering abstract thought, like. Like, they can't really think abstractly completely yet. Yeah, so the brain is not fully developed until at least 25. Yeah. But if there was significant trauma, Mm -hmm. where in which a lot of cortisol was released early on, it goes all the way up to about 30. Yeah. So when you're not processing the trauma and how that impacted the teen's brain is really scary because they need to understand and my poor children keep hearing well I'm like your brain your brain is not fully developed yet (laughs) but nobody ever told me that right I said that to someone the other day and they were like oh that makes me feel so much better like (laughs) because you know there's a lot going on like I have found that a lot of my clients, once they hit 26 or even 25, so many more things start making sense. And they feel so relieved. So as parents, like, you got to just be doing that work to helping them be safe up, like, up until that point where things start making more sense. Right. So, and then the last thing I would want to say is, and I didn't say this in the parenting thing is no mocking, mm. no mm-hmm. teasing yeah. what so ever yeah. in your house. Don't call your child a baby. Right. Don't mock a physical trait. Oh, pudgy. Mm-hmm. Um, don't mock any part of your child For sure. through any type of name calling done in fun. It yeah. is very damaging to their self-confidence is very damaging to your relationship with them and there's not safety to talk to you about things right it's kind of like you I think I maybe it this feels like a distant thought because it feels like your teen wants nothing to do to with you again a normal thing <laughs> but they still take everything you say to heart and want nothing more than your approval or love. Oh, my goodness. If, like, parents were a fly on the wall in some of my sessions, I think they would be astounded at how much their teenager just wants them to feel approved by them. Absolutely. And sometimes I say, you know, sometimes our bad the beha- bad behaviors, the bad choices are to get the the attention they're not getting positive attention right they're getting negative attention and they're still getting attention yeah which is super scary but it's something that you as a parent have to own this is what's happening yeah well again we do see teenagers here at wellspring solutions (laughs) (laughs) and so uh kate has availability 
we're pretty full right now, but if Kate has availability, give us a call and uh, you can just find us on the website at wellspringsolutions.com. We also would be certainly willing to come and talk to um, parent groups or parents of teenager groups because it's something that I don't feel like gets discussed a lot Not in a religious lot. environments or even in group formats. No. We don't see support groups for parents of teenagers, but it needs to be out there. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any teen that I haven't worked with where the family soon wasn't involved as far as a session or like talking about these things with the parents to help them understand. But to have a support group of other parents being able to make these things normal to talk about would be very nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So give us a call and check us out on the website. Thanks so much for listening today. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to Emotional and Spiritual Wellbeing with Sharon Wegman. For more resources or to have Sharon speak at your meeting or event, please visit wellspringssolutions.com.